0: Today we want to talk about impact that design can have. In commercial design, it's easy to measure impact or at least its success. We have metrics like usability, how well it sells and, and things like that. But in a more critical design practice like adversarial design or speculative desa- design, which ask us to think rather than buy, what metrics should we use, if any? So this is the question of double question of today, and mm-hmm. we're trying to answer it. Um, and Rebecca Ross is helping us today.
1: Yes. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. <laughs> thanks Rebe- for inviting me. Thanks so much for being here. Rebecca is a senior lecturer of graphic communication design at Central Saint Martins, with a ba- background in architecture, urban history, human geography, and graphic design. <laughs> um, <laughs> so thanks for being here. Sure. Um, we brought you in because we want to talk about uh, this question that Linda posed, and the so the intention of speculative design, as we understand it, is to influence the future in a positive way by presenting tangible possibilities of what that future could look like. Um, but we're curious about your opinion about how we know what's actually influential mm-hmm. in that field.
0: So do you think that speculative design should be something then for a broader public? Or inten- is, it, is that more something intended to be for designers only?
2: Um, I think that's a really good question. I think when the first the first I encountered speculative design and it maybe didn't, I think it's qu- probably quite an old thing that maybe quite an old term, not it's, not, it's a newer term, but something that I think it's something that designers have done for quite a long time. Maybe the Eames are probably a good example of um, de- designers to go back to working in a speculative way mm-hmm. and asking questions about the future through design and trying to get people to think about the future in new ways through design given the definition that you just mentioned. But I guess this, the term speculative design doesn't get coined really um, until later. And there's, I remember I was in design school, and I was in design school in America when um, Hertzian Tales by Anthony Dunn came mm-hmm. out. And, um, and it would its first printing was just the Royal College Press, which didn't necessarily circulate internationally at that time. And I remember kind of ordering a copy from the UK And like (laughs) the first person who kind of brought it back on a plane with them, and then we were all looking at it, and then we all ordered (laughs) copies, because we had never quite seen anything like it before. um, Where design is, um, where where the the objects that were kind of documented in the process that were documented in that book, were really kind of about design and about the possibilities of design. um, and, And sort of made a case for what design contributes in a really bold way, and that was really exciting. Um, and I think at that time, it was, like, design students and designers looking at each what each other were doing to think about how the disciplines of design were transforming and developing. But then the book that, um, I guess, came out maybe three years ago now yeah. um, by um, Fiona Rabi and Anthony Dunn, Speculative Everything, I think that book is um, written in a way that's much more... Um, accessible to a broader audience. It Mm -hmm. went through MIT Press rather than this teeny tiny publishing outfit. And I think that that book's sort of much much more likely to reach like tons of undergraduates, tons of schools, and maybe even reach school students. And I think it sort of summarizes speculative design looking back retrospectively. But I think the purpose of doing that is to make the concept Sort of much more widely accessible, kind of in the way that TED Talks are accessible. Mm-hmm. Whatever you feel about TED Talks, yeah. they they are TED Talks are like a um, a way that knowledge gets disseminated generally to lots of different audiences. Mm-hmm. And so I think that 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 later book is targeted at a wider audience, whereas some of the earlier publications mm-hmm. um, probably circulated in this. Kind of in this designer to designer way,
1: right? So you're saying that sort of by defining or coining it, you're actually giving influence to the projects that take on that name, because then people understand the concept of speculative design.
2: Um, Well, I guess, I guess so. I think maybe, yeah. I I think it probably it wasn't like when and tells came out, they were like, we we are doing speculative design, and here are the principles. But I think that having been operating in this way for you know, I guess it was, like, f- something like probably a 15-year-ish period between the two books with another book in between, mm. Design Noir. Um, I, I, and, and there's, like, PhD, pro- like, Matt Malpass's PhD was about speculative design in his book, which is now mm. out from Bloomsbury Press, kind of looking back on that period. Mm-hmm. I feel like that period of 15 years was kind of required to be, like, okay, we're initiating this project and here's some parts of it, and it seemed really bold, But then it takes some time to look back on any kind of big change and give it a name and try and really understand, well, stuff's been happening, but you need a little bit of distance to sort of be able to synthesize and summarize the implications of it. But then there's other pieces too, and all of the sort of institutional changes and global political changes that happened during that period as well are also relevant.
0: Yeah, this is actually quite a good one to go into the next question, right? Um, because in the book they're saying they're not trying to predict the future, but introducing design to open up all sorts of possibilities that it can be discussed, debated, and used for a collective to find preferable future in the given group of people. Um, so where where should we look at speculative design work? Because if we look at it in a museum, how can we then have a debate
2: about it, or how can we then discuss it? I think that's a really interesting question because. I don't think that we, I don't think you could ever kind of decide how an audience is going to encounter any kind of object or media or whatever it is. I actually think that all the different modes of sharing knowledge are really interrelated. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I, I think the first bits of Dun and Robbie's work came out in publications, and then later they were offered. The opportunity to exhibit, and I think that they've you know engaged with those opportunities as they've been available, but um, and they've been influential in different ways. But I think that uh, you you know if you exhibit something in a museum, that doesn't mean that it's not going to get picked up by social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes actually, I've had the experience of a project being more influential because of the way that it circulated on social media oh, right. than actually from its its original mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes if the idea is the idea is worthy of discussion, yeah. whether it originates whether it's first published in the form of a museum exhibition or whether it's first published in some other form or in some other medium then it will kind of generate discussion across media so right. newspapers will so newspapers don't pick up everything that's exhibited in museums yeah but they'll something something if there's something provocative that's worthy of discussion that needs yeah. to be processed by a culture
1: yeah
2: then it'll it'll get hashed out on Twitter it'll get hashed out in the newspaper it'll get hashed out on Facebook and those things will inform each other yeah so I don't necessarily see the museum as like I I, and I actually think museums are doing a good job of not thinking of themselves as like, as, sep, as sort of in a, in a vacuum. They yeah. shouldn't. They shouldn't view themselves as in a vacuum. But the more proactive museums can be about how they are per- permeable or porous, mm-hmm. the, the more interesting of a dialogue that they can have. Um, and actually, I think there might be something really interesting to look at. Like, for example, um, the Victorian Albert Museum's rapid prototype. Uh, sorry, rapid rapid collection rapid collection i uh, have to we might have to look up the yeah. exact name but victorian albert has this gallery it's a rapid response gallery mm. ah, cool. and what happens is is that they bring it's not related to speculative design but it's relevant to this question because what they do is they'll collect normally museums wait for that sort of historical significance to be established before collecting something because it's expensive to collect something yeah. into a permanent collection and what this is is it's a gallery that holds I think ten objects and ten objects only. It's very small, and they collect things in, a, in a, kind of as, as a rapid response to culture. So, for example, they collected um, there was a gun that was 3D printed for the first time. Uh-huh. They collected it straight away, and they collected the wrist mounted computer that Amazon staff used to <laughs> track, to track um, how parcels are moving. And so, what they what, what this idea of like the museum museums themselves are experimenting with new forms of quite immediate, mm-hmm. immediate dialogue mm-hmm. with culture and it, I think speculative design sort of fits into that whole ecosystem yeah. of um, what's going on in the world, how are we um, thinking about the future in relation to what's going on now and what are the different ways for different versions of the future to become um, possible through you know, as many people being a part of that Discussion of what's possible as possible. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, absolutely. No, I mean that leads into my next question, which was what's the difference between speculative design and prototyping?
2: Oh, that's a really good... Because it yeah. feels
1: like if you are starting that conversation with people, you're getting feedback, and then you can... If you actually want to make it real, yeah. you can integrate that feedback.
2: I think that that's a really... I think that question of what the difference between speculative design and prototyping is is a really good question to ask because um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a question that puts certain pressures on, speci- on speculative design, and I think that's where mm. speculative design maybe has to an- kind of answer itself more or answer for itself more. Um, because I think it's it's there's a distinction in how the credibility is derived between a speculative design project and a prototype. Mm-hmm. And I'll try and get more specific about that. So um, speculative design relates to some kind of a projected future context. And so the credibility is derived from how convincing that future vision might be, um, not necessarily from... The, and sometimes it's sometimes the credibility is derived from technical feasibility mm-hmm. um, but the feasibility of the future scenario often goes unevaluated and I think that's an issue um, whereas prototyping demonstrates function mm. in r- relation to contemporary context so prototyping proves um, proves technical you know some sort of technical yeah. functionality but also possibly um, kind of user experience or things like that, right. it, 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 it proves some sort of functionality in the present. Whereas it allows you to evaluate and iterate functionality in relation to the, the present context. Right. Whereas speculative design um, re- depends on a so- story about the future. And that story about the future, like all, like all stories, requires critical evaluation and i don't know that it always opens itself to the right forms of critical evaluation in that regard
1: yeah yeah that makes sense and don and avi talk a lot about how they need to work with scientists or experts in that in that area so that it is feasible yeah which is funny in the context of what you just said because they they are they are trying to make their work something that imagines a possible future right
2: yeah i think that that that's really interesting and um they do talk about that in kind of at events and things and um, that, that that everything that they present is something that given contemporary technology kind of could happen. Yeah. Like that the technology or the engineering know-how exists. Yeah that, that, yeah. that it could happen. Um, but the thing that the thing that they don't address is sort of the socioeconomic and cultural side mm-hmm. of that. So the scenarios that they project their kind of new tech new configurations of technology into those to me don't seem checked out in the way that the engineering within the objects themselves seems checked out yeah so the plausibility of like um united micro kingdoms is like the best example of that the plausibility of um of those sorts of communities emerging can you just say a word about the the project itself
0: some if someone sure. Yeah, yeah.
2: so um one of the one of the pro- I don't remember what year it was. There is a project called United Micro Kingdoms. It was it was it was started. It was a museum exhibition. It's yeah. relatively it, recent. Yeah, 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 it was documented in speculative everything. Yeah. Um, and that project uh, has a vision of um, the future of Britain as four micro kingdoms, and each micro kingdom has different characteristics based on the values of its community mm-hmm. and. Um, based on sort of the technological, I, th- th- there's projections of kind of contemporary pressures on culture into the future and how they might become more pressures in different directions, mm-hmm. such as lack of fuel or yeah. lack of. Um, go
0: through different scenarios that could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So, for example, in one of the spec, one of the micro kingdoms, there's a fix. The community has a fixed number, mm-hmm. um, and they all live on a train, and. I love it th- I love it and it makes for fantastic it makes for fantastic images and it made for fantastic models at the exhibition and um it's really interesting but how and there's and, and there's more to that train that I'm describing right now and why they're on a train and what the philosophy is but um it has to do with like always being connected mm-hmm. to the internet and things like that I'm I'm probably summarizing it poorly, but um, the idea that uh, that of how how that it seems really well considered that there could be this this train that's always running and (laughs)
1: yeah that
2: or or the bicycles uh or there was one which was like organic, they were like growing. Were they growing vehicles or <laughs> something, <laughs> something like that? The the, the kind of this, the, the research into biotech and yeah, all yeah, of yeah. those yeah. projects are really it's really interesting. Or bicycling becoming a primary form of transportation, and then the human body becoming kind of more focused on thigh muscles as a result mm-hmm. of that. Those You're things right. yeah, those yeah, things yeah. are all really fascinating, and, um, and and they do seem to be backed up by biotech contemporary biotech research, but then the socio-political projections that are around them don't seem to be backed up by research in the social sciences and the humanities in the same Mm -hmm. way. And actually, I think that 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 has to do with the research funding environment. Mm -hmm. There's much more research funding and kind of uh, corporate partnerships available for universities in engineering, science, and technology and things like biotech than there is in relation to thinking about political philosophy or thinking about kind of um, certain parts of social science or anthropology or things like that. And so there's this tendency of the detail and the depth to kind of follow the research funding, but actually, as a result, it may be that there's a lack of attention to sort of the plausibility of the socio-political, cultural situations Mm -hmm. that these technologies are projected within. Right,
1: right. And was that project, was that something that they were hoping for in your opinion or is that like a critical view of the future more dystopian
2: oh i think that the united micro kingdoms what's good is is that there are utopian and dystopian elements of all four micro kingdoms and actually i think they do a really good job of i think they do a really good job of, of not i mean what i value about i mean what i value about i value the balance there yeah um there's a question about When you make like a crystal clear image of the future, which speculative design is kind of like, look, we're going to show you what the future is going to be like. Yeah. And that could be if we go along this good way that the world's developing or if we go along this bad way that the world's developing. Mm. There's a danger that instead of like opening possibilities, you're fixing them. And I think that that's a balance that they're really aware of that they try and ride really
0: carefully. But isn't that something that problem solving design often does as well? by looking in into a huge field, which designers often think, oh, let's save the world, or let's save that, yeah. by breaking it down, and making the problem seem less bad as it is.
2: I guess, I mean, so you're saying, and I guess you're saying problem-solving design would be like a non-speculative. Yes. Like you're, uh, yeah. you're putting those two yeah. things in dialogue with yeah. each other. Okay, so let me think for a second. I think the distinction has to do with like the, the, the liberties that are taken with the narrative that's mm. being projected into, mm. so I think in speculative design there's a kind of sp- there's a pr- there's a projection into a condition that does not exist yet but could yeah. possibly exist.
1: Yeah, and but it, it seems like it's likely to exist, right? Is the that the idea?
2: That's the worry I have because yeah. I don't necessarily think I don't think they're presenting either utopic or dystopic scenarios. Yeah. I think they're spent pr- 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 presenting provocative scenarios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for example, if they show you this is what life's going to be like if like we don't really have like fruits and vegetables anymore. Right. You know, we're gonna be kind of like eating food in this other way, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. figuring out this, these are ways we could eat if we don't if we don't have the capacity to grow enough mm-hmm. fruit and vegetables anymore. The the first mode of design, I guess I'll call it. What, problem solving I said design, design. design? Yeah. <laughs> so problem solving design p- might actually be looking more at like oh we need fruit and vegetables how do we keep fruit and vegetables yeah. or like what needs All to happen right. yeah. for there to still be fruit and vegetables or maybe like do we need to think about the way you know like there's lots of of material that like I think a pro- kind of problem, problem solving design at this present moment when we're not sure what's going to happen with fruit and vegetables yeah. is like probably going to be more immediately attached to yeah. fruit and vegetables whereas right. there's this possibility for like design that presumes fruit and vegetables aren't going to be there anymore to sort of, like, last off. Mm
1: -hmm. That
2: hasn't yet kind of... It sort of takes something that hasn't yet come to pass as given. And I guess that's what I would say the decision is.
1: Well, but speculative design then could... So influence problem solving design, right? Because if speculative design is there, and then it presents this question of the yeah. future, and here we are. Oh, we should solve this future
2: question could, now. Because speculative design could do a couple of things. It could provide a really good idea. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. It could provide a really good idea, but then it could also provide awareness of what some sort of future condition might be like in a way that people really don't want to go into that future. Yeah. So mm. that's where I think it's it's really tricky and. What's nice is that a visitor, they're not saying to people, we need we we, we mustn't we mustn't stop being able to produce fruit and vegetables. I know you yeah. keep using that metaphor, but we mustn't not not be able we mustn't do this or we must yeah. do that. They're not saying to people yeah. that. What they're trying to do is they're trying to give people an experience that allows them to have conversations about what they want the future to be like. Mm-hmm. And certainly like getting designers to participate in those conversations is great because that means that designers could is like they could, a designer who's a really like very utilitarian, um, very utilitarian oriented designer, let's say, yeah. could probably be informed by a speculative design about something related to the environment mm. in a way that they might approach in a much more relative to the present mm-hmm. way. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it could actually open up doors. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, whenever you draw a picture, you're both opening and closing doors yeah. and it's a very careful balance yeah, to yeah. keep hold of yeah i feel like literature has been doing it for a long time though precisely and that's what i meant like i i refer back to the eames i think that's where design maybe starts to do it although le corbusier is a spec you mm, know in, in a way le Corbusier's yeah, yeah, work yeah. can be seen as speculative design as well from architecture right. or even earlier like uh the garden city drawing you know like 19th century garden city drawings and it, you can go further and further back into history,
1: right? So the idea
2: of speculating, is on, yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, like like this is how people could live, right? Um, and certainly utopian. I mean, utopian literature. You go back to the Bible is, is right. a speculative right. design, in, yeah. a, in a lot of ways. Um, and so, um, and I think probably different cultural traditions have different forms of speculation that mm-hmm. have created momentum in in those cultures, but once we start going back to, like, ancient times, it starts to be too big of a conversation for us as designers. (laughs) Sure. Sure. But looking at, like, 1984 or, like, Brave New World or anything,
1: it was just sort of supposed to scare you into maybe solving a current problem.
2: Yeah, I think that that's right, and I think that, like, there's a lot of, um, yeah, the question is, is, like, um, I was reading this really interesting critique of... um, I was reading this really interesting critique of of satirical television. Okay. And what they were kind of reporting on was the fact that, say, um, say Tina Fey portraying Sarah Palin. So this was in a Malcolm Gladwell podcast. I have to fess up here. Mm. Okay. Um, So say Tina Fey portraying um, Sarah Palin on Saturday Night Live right before that election Mm. and make kind of basically... um, making fun of Sarah Palin instead of like making fun of how she looks or how she dresses sure. and things like that she talks. there's this w- and how she talks there's this way in which sort of filling in some of the sort of putting forward the surface of a mm-hmm. situation um sometimes distracts from the substantive discussion about yeah. its substance yeah and I think that in, in many ways, speculative design is communication as much as any other kind of any t- product design or whatever you want to call it, yeah. and actually being really mindful of like, the relationship between meaningful, substantial dialogue yeah. and like the kind of crust of communication yeah. is, is really important. I would
1: almost call that a parody instead mm. of a satire, yeah. right? Because you're not attacking the issue. You're attacking well, something superficial. I,
2: I guess the other thing that I was going to say was that so like and I, I I sort of left this out when I was talking about yeah. um that particular example is that not only that that actually made Sarah Palin more popular with yeah, the right yeah uh,
1: yeah and that's the same
2: thing with uh it's the same thing there's lots of other examples like some of the material that um some of the satirical or par- I don't know that we want to spend time yeah <laughs> satire but some of when you when you're I, I guess parody and satire are really relevant here. And actually, Matt Malpass's book is about comedy in speculative design. Mm, okay. You guys might like to talk to him because he's a lecturer here. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, but what I was going to say is is that um, what, what when you, when you have a a, a character like that um, where they're making there's like a you're they're making fun of something in a way that you're thinking oh I'm drawing attention to what's wrong with mm. such and such situation. Actually, um, it doesn't usually change people's minds. And actually, sometimes it can promote the situation that it's making fun of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, for example, that Sarah Palin um, portrayal by Tina Fey brought support for Tina Fey. Yeah. Not because people Defensive support, right? No, not even defensive support. Just, oh, yeah. Sarah. like, literally, like... Just awareness. Like, literally, like, people became more aware... People on the right became more aware of Sarah, Sarah Palin... In a supportive way huh. through her presence on Saturday Night Live, in that character, with they didn't get the, they took what they wanted out of the portrayal. Mm-hmm. They didn't, yeah. they didn't feel, they didn't feel critical of Sarah Palin through that portrayal by right. Tina Fey. They actually, um, they actually identified with her. Right, mm.
0: right. But if we <laughs> if we then project that onto speculative design, what, how do we because. This is this is a like yeah. on the edge
1: i think so yeah 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 that's why i'm trying to figure out the prototyping thing because if you are presenting a dystopian future that's scaring people fine yeah. or you're presenting a possible future that you want which is sort of prototyping yeah. like
2: i think usually like, you find a bit of both okay. in, the, yeah. in these okay. scenarios yeah. so
0: should the designer then be more neutral
2: i don't think that's such a i don't think that's that's really possible yeah exactly uh, so the question was um is what, what, is, what should the role of the designer be in relation to um, facilitating a conversation? Mm-hmm. I think maybe that maybe or maybe or that's my answer. So <laughs> I said...
0: Should the designer have a, a neutral role by designing? So not pick a side of like... Just think this okay. is
2: what could happen. So I don't think designers, but I don't think designers really can have a neutral role. Yeah, right. Um, I think that and neither can designers know everything about everything enough to pass, like, really confident judgment on all things right. in yeah. their work. I think that there is a way in which the designer has to always be on guard and asking lots of questions at every step in the process um, and and really reflecting on... Um, on the implications of whatever's being made carefully. And that's not like an easy blanket answer. Yeah. But I, I think it is really important. I don't think I think I don't think that the I think that there's a history in the middle of the twentieth century, early middle twentieth century of, of an idea of like design as providing a sort of universal a universality, a total neutrality, mm-hmm. like a, a blank page. Mm-hmm. I think that that got really disposed of in the nineteen seventies and mm-hmm. we need to be really mindful of the reasons. Yeah. They got disposed of at the same time we need to avoid like being total relativists yeah yeah mm-hmm. and so um i think that in relation to speculative design maybe it is important that um a designer is really careful about how each detail of their work is derived so in other words what i was saying before that i took some issue with is i'm like oh well all the technological depth seems to be there but that doesn't seem to be the case as much for those socio-political cultural dimensions of some of the Mm -hmm. projects and so what i would like to see designers do is i'd like to see them maintain a stance of a a responsibility to like not make not make ungrounded presumptions and Mm -hmm. to make sure that the the kind of rationale underlying decisions, larger decisions and smaller scale decisions, um, that that rationale is is always there, um, with a, with a degree of depth and rigor, and that can often arise through partnerships. Yeah. And and the partnerships in speculative design tend to be with tech, but. Actually, it would be really nice to see speculative design in more collaboration with the humanities. Right. Mm-hmm. I would really welcome that. Yeah. And I, I think you get th- a lot out of um, – designers get a lot out of collaborating with um, collaborating with experts in yeah. a very wide range of subjects. Yeah. And, but there's an attraction to tech for obvious reasons. Um, but I think it would do everybody well for there to be collaboration in lots of other spaces as well.
1: Yeah, and I think it's more clear-cut on what is and isn't possible in yeah. tech, and so that's it's a bit easier, right? Mm. But I think that the people who work in the humanities, you know, are sort of siloed in their ivory
2: towers anyway, so yeah. they would probably appreciate someone bringing their future visions to life. I think it's complicated. I think that this is something that... I, um, Academics have to answer for quite a bit. I think about yeah. this a lot. It's very built into the MA Graphic Communication Design curriculum here, um, to think about design as a kind of research mm-hmm. and research as design, and um, and and that's not just kind of so, so, sort of social science or or hard science. That's actually really looking at humanities and culture broadly. And I I do agree. I think university. Expertise is un, in, under greater question and under sort of a more kind of un, it's under more scrutiny than it's ever been before. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, actually, that might not be true. If we go back to like, if we go back to like thinking about, um, I like Galileo or something. That's okay, yeah. that's way worse <laughs> than what's happening now. But um, but but in in the kind of contemporary period right now. There's like very little regard for the university-based expert in, mm-hmm. in more broad cultures, and actually, with the exception of some television, the general standard of like um, quality of public debate is really poor right now. Yeah, and so <laughs> we have university staff sort of yes, at many times kind of talking to each other rather than thinking about how to um, engage with a broader audience, and then. We have the people who are engaged with broader audiences, mm-hmm. not c- not looking for enough depth. And I yeah. guess the the, the con- kind of my rationale for kind of compelling designers to seek that depth and kind of draw those connections is to make sure that um, to make sure that we don't have like a completely tech driven, yeah. science driven future, yeah. For tech- I know that I could single-handedly make sure of that but to contribute to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes
1: sense. Mm-hmm.
0: The most um speculative design projects I looked at they always had to do something with objects mm. and we were just yeah we were just talking about that earlier and actually you gave a good answer to it Erin <laughs> um but like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> do not remember? Oh yeah, we were asking if speculative design could only be communicated through objects, and I just said, well, that's how it's different than literature or whatever is that it's tangible. Like design is our tool.
2: Yeah, although I would say that um, what I said before about the in, about like sometimes the distinction between a museum and like other yeah, I actually think that for example like Dunn and Robbie's work very. F- a very small percentage of people have seen the objects right. compared to the percentage of people who've seen the publications. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. actually, those publications, it's probably, I think, probably the images of their work are more important than the objects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, they probably produce objects to create those images. So, again, I would caution against mm-hmm. the, the distinction between kind of an object right. and communication. Right. There, the, I think that that's a little blurry, and it's healthy for that to be blurry. Um, so uh, I also think though that um, I think that that there I, I would question whether it's helpful to like have those categories, right. or whether it might be more productive to just not worry about them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You guys had impact. Uh, that's kind of what you led with. Is yeah. that something you want to talk. The measurement of impact is that something you still want to talk about? Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> that was our that was our idea, but. Um, yeah, if you have an opinion on it, we're just like, we don't know. Yes, you have these feedback loops that maybe come from the communications around speculative design, but then
2: then what? Well, the interesting thing is, like what I said before, is that sometimes it's it's the... Um, and this relates to what we were saying about the humanities and the social sciences and different kinds of expertise and how they're valued differently by culture. They're also valued differently by government
1: right. and research funders.
2: And so there's this way mm. in which speculative design is partially shaped by... The kind of protocols that surround research funding mm-hmm. and the fact that more research funding flows into STEM than into the yeah. humanities. And so I mentioned that earlier. And also, those are the kinds of research funding uh, where the proposals have to emphasize a very quantitative form of measurability, whereas the humanities don't traditionally right. have, you know, it's very hard to impact measure the impact of a novel, for example. Yeah. So I think that these are all really tied up. Um, the two ways that um, the two ways that I guess impact gets assessed okay, um, that might kind of relate to resources becoming available and that's, uh, there's a relation, I guess I'm trying to emphasize yeah. that there's a relationship between how you measure impact and what resources can then flow into an area of experimentation and I guess a lot of people will look at social media metrics as yeah. a way to demonstrate impact so to demonstrate oh like um my twitter account's followed by 200,000 people is like yeah a demonstration mm-hmm. of impact yeah um whereas um i think there traditionally have been like ways for science to say oh we we're saving these lives or we're mm-hmm. we're doing this or we're doing that so i think um there are a variety of emergent ways of measuring the kind of scale of a discussion. Yeah. However, they're definitely, like, mm. lacking, if that makes sense. Like, it's right, just because someone looked at it, you don't know what they'll do with yeah, that information. exactly. So I think one of the challenges is, like I said before, this tends to be tech-driven, mm-hmm. and it would be great if it were driven from a wider range of concerns, but actually it's very difficult to measure it yeah. right. from that wider range of concerns. Right. And that's one of the obstacles. Yeah. And it's really interesting, but it is an obstacle. And I think I'd I'd would lo- I'd like to see designers working on the cultural the problems with our cultural dependence on quantifiable evidence.
1: Yeah.
2: But for now, you know, certainly I mean, museums are interesting. I think this is why speculative design has flowed to the museum space because curation, if you think about the the, the, the the distinction between, say, the government making a decision mm-hmm. and a museum making a decision, governments will tend mm-hmm. to make decisions based on quantitative evidence, yeah, right. but museums make decisions with curators, mm-hmm. and curation is never done quantitatively. That would be right, crazy. Right. Yeah. And so the idea of a curator, curators synthesize... They do a degree of, um, they do a degree of analysis and their own degree of speculation. So that it sort of makes sense that the speculative design projects would flow that direction because they have this sort of human, human. Um, valuation of a curator yeah. whereas um, government funding is often based on harder data yeah. mm-hmm. and that harder data isn't necessarily easy to come by for the kinds of projects right. that tend to be in that space
1: You could almost say that once it's in a museum it's made somewhat of an impact
2: right? To a point, I think it, I think it, the curator is, yeah. is, is a big X factor there. because yeah, I think there are some curators who work really hard to, um, they they'll they'll pay attention to very uh, niche, mm. small scale happenings, and then they'll use their platform as being like a major museum curator to like bring something to a like if something flows from a tiny gallery in deep East London yeah. into the Tate Modern, that's a big. Yeah, that's a big step up for it. Yeah. Um, and good curators will have a really thoughtful way of figuring out how to give things a bigger platform.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you definitely have to think of the role of the curators. Yeah, yeah. Huge I, part of be. the impact. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think yeah, so. Sure. Yeah. Mm.
0: Great. Well, we, whenever we have a guest, we ask them a one last question, okay. which is completely <laughs> off topic, Fine. um, because we just noticed that the word interesting is used. A lot. <laughs> yeah. um, so we're trying to collect different, def- different definitions of the word interesting. Um, so what do,
2: you, what do you, How would you use We've gotten things like, oh, just Not another word today. that means... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so a completely neutral. Okay, just your opinion. Okay, this, I think it's really interesting because coming from North America, the word interesting has a different connotation in the UK, I think, than it does in North right. America. It does it? Okay. I think that in the UK, sometimes the word interesting gets used like... Kind of as a brush off. Oh, yeah. interesting. Oh, now that's let's move on. Um, but uh, in, I think it wouldn't get used that way in writing. Here. No. But I think it does get used that way in conversation. Yes. Like, oh, yeah, interesting, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's something I noticed here that didn't happen in North America. Uh-huh. But I also think that oh, maybe it does now. Maybe it's just a change in the language. But um, I guess... It, it it's a word that's can be really um, it can be really empty or really full. So it's probably a word that's best followed up with with more words. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> cool. And should the person who says
0: interesting follow up with more words, or the the counterpart?
2: It that's <laughs> open. I mean, I, I think if you get told interesting in like an unsatisfying way, then it's up to you to ask sure. the question. Um And if but it equally like it's possible to use interesting as a starting point in an explanation. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> That's funny. Is that the qu- you ask everybody that question? Yeah. That question, yeah. yeah. Later you can tell me what people have said. Yeah. yeah, yeah we we should put together one where it's just the
0: bits yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Thank, cool. you so, Thank you so so much yeah, for yeah, coming today.
2: It.